Good evening and welcome to another edition of the CNS Guidelines Podcast. My name is Brad Elder. I am neurosurgery faculty at The Ohio State University and I am the host of the Guidelines Podcast. Uh, tonight our topic is vestibular schwannoma. And uh, in addition to reviewing the previous guideline collection of papers on this topic, we also have the opportunity to ask uh, two of the authors from the prior guideline about the development of the upcoming update to the guideline, which is which is pending and, and coming soon. And the hope, of course, is, is that we can uh, uh, gain some insight into how uh, the prior guideline was developed, how the current, how that development has shaped additional questions or changes to questions uh, that might be addressed in the upcoming uh, update. So uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce our uh, two guests. We have Dr. Olson uh, from Emory and Dr. Riken uh, from Dartmouth. And I'll ask each of the guests to introduce themselves. I'll pass it over to uh, Dr. Olson first to, to lead things off. Thanks, Dr. Elder. Uh, this is Jeff Olson. I'm a neurosurgeon uh, at Emory University, specializing in neurosurgical oncology. I'm the uh, chair of the Joint Tumor Section Guidelines Committee, so I get to participate in a lot of these uh, enjoyable projects. This specific one um, started in late 2015, early 2016, when the charge was to establish guidelines for management of vestibular schwannoma. Um, we reviewed literature from the beginning of 1990 through the end of 2014, and uh, then created a series of sections. Um, and in order to do our writing, we recruited um, individuals who are neurosurgeons, radiation oncologists, neuroradiologists, and uh, we had a number of otolaryngologists uh, specializing in neurotology uh, from a number of uh, institutions across the nation. It was actually a very nice uh, multidisciplinary effort. We uh, came up with uh, eight different sections looking at um, all the different parts of the management of vestibular schwannoma, including audiologic screening, a section on determining prognosis for hearing preservation with any of the treatments, a section on uh, cranial nerve monitoring and its values and pros and cons, another on vestibular schwannoma imaging, one on pathology, one on radiation therapy, mostly focused on radio surgery, another on the benefits and drawbacks of surgery, and a last one looking at emerging therapies or concepts for uh, this tumor type. Uh, it was published electronically in 2017 and uh, in print in February 2018. So this is now getting a little bit old. The uh, old Institute of Medicine, or now the National Academy of Medicine, recommends that we update these about every five years. And to that end, we initiated an update process the end of 2021 and are now actively in the uh, uh, evaluation of the new literature since the beginning of 2015 to prepare an update right up for each of these sections. Great. Uh, Dr. Riken, any comments? Um, yeah, I, I, I'm Tim Riken. I'm a, uh, the chief at, at Dartmouth, uh, also neurosurgery. I, through the process of this guidelines process, I've got my master's degree in clinical epidemiology about 10, 12 years ago. And you know, was, um, I'm, I was involved with, in terms of the vestibular schwannoma, more in terms of training the 
people that were going to be involved. One of the charges of the the Joint Guidelines Committee of the AANS and the CNS, which was created in the late late 90s, early 2000s, was to make sure that we had people that were working on these kind of committees that had a fairly uniform training sequence. Not everybody can have an MPH, and but everyone can learn how to do this type of methodology. And so I had a role in developing um, a homegrown method of treating people or training people and did that at the CNS and the, and the WNS meetings for a number of years. So I was the chair of the guidelines committee uh, for, um, I don't know, three, four years and, and, uh, and still participate as past chair. So that my role has been mainly in, in uh, cheerleading, I would say, as far as this process in general, um, I was commenting to, to, to Brad and Jeff earlier, I was at a fairly major meeting not long ago, and one of the major speakers was charged with discussing the guidelines on a certain topic and, uh, and really started, the, the, started his, uh, his, uh, his speech or talk with, with, you know, the guidelines really don't say much on this, so we really rely on expert witness, and that's really exactly the opposite of what all of the people who have dedicated time to learning this process and trying to better the better the medical knowledge in our in our area um, have been trying to do. Neurosurgery was relatively late to the party back in the late '90s. The head injury guidelines were one of the first sort of eye-opening things for a lot of neurosurgeons, and there were a lot of topics in that very first head injury guideline that people, neurosurgeons, practicing neurosurgeons had had accepted as dogma from their training and then were surprised to learn that actually the evidence did not necessarily support the way that they'd been practicing. A lot of that's due to regional specialty development, which has changed. People are moving across the country more and more. They're not staying necessarily in the same areas. So we don't see that same training effect where there's a very prominent surgeon in one area and trains everybody to do the things in that way. And that's, that's a, I think that that applies nationally. I think it also applies internationally. Um, in terms of the vestibular schwannoma thing, the, the European Federation's guidelines uh, from a couple years ago, they use slightly different methodology, but uh, I think the methodology is pretty good. I'm sure that Dr. Olson can comment. I'm sure that that has come into play in their initial literature review for this. So um, the, other, the other thing that I think has been very rewarding just in general from this process and from the involvement with the sections is getting to know other surgeons in your area, um, certainly encourage residents and junior faculty to try to seek out opportunities. Sometimes they're not there. Sometimes other people are <laughs> not as willing to let you into the group, but it's still worth trying. Some of the sections are much more open um, and need help with this type of uh, work. Um, every time I've been involved with anything like this, I've learned a lot. Um, Jeff and I and, and Steve Kalkanis, when we did the first glioblastoma uh, guideline, we reviewed 11,000 articles over, I don't know how many months. I mean, and mo I have to admit, mostly abstracts, but still just wading through all that, getting rid of the papers that really had been, uh, you know, kind of held to as dogma that really weren't anything more than opinion. And then, and then starting to categorize, and it really makes a foundation. So it's exciting that the vestibular schwannoma, the people that are interested in skull-based surgery, uh, took this project on. It came about pretty quickly um, compared to some of them. We had 
some guideline processes that dragged on for centuries, it seemed like at some points, I think, uh, uh, and some of them which we, I was involved with starting and we'd never have finished yet because it just gets so uh, bogged down. But uh, it's no reason to not keep trying. And I'll be interested, I'm going to give it back to Jeff here, because I think one of the, Jeff, Dr. Olson seems to, every time he's involved with one of these, he gets stuck with the final chapter as one of his charges, which is always emerging therapies in X, Y, and Z. So again, in the vestibular one, he was first author in that. So whether that's going to be part of this, but I think the more important one, if you look at uh, the, the head injury guidelines as they've gone along and, and the pediatric ones is the chapter to look at is really the one that says, okay, what are the, what are the updates from the previous guideline? What's been learned in the last five years? What, what level three evidence has now been advanced to level two? And why was that done? Who took an interest in it? Usually it's pathology, radiology. They're, they're easier topics to get that kind of data on. It's harder to get high level clinical evidence, but it's, it is possible to do better prospective studies. It's better to, to, to be able to do case control studies and answer some of the questions that you might be interested in as a, as a clinical researcher. Um, so um, I guess, Jeff, I'd ask that, giving it back to you is to say, I'm sure that you, or I shouldn't say that, but I imagine you're gonna put that update section in and say, okay, here's, here's the old one, here's the new one, and here's, here's what we're excited about uh, coming forward. Or, or you think we're gonna see that from your initial literature review? That's pretty much how we write them. We quickly summarize uh, what was said on the prior guidelines, and then we go through a, a section that uses, either modifies old questions or uses brand new questions to uh, address what's in the literature. Um, when we put these together, you, know, you uh, assemble your writers, you come up with questions for the last guideline or those sections I mentioned, there were between three and 11 useful questions, depending on which uh, section we're talking about. And then you evaluate the literature and see if it can answer it. And uh, you were getting at the you know, level one, level two, three designation based upon class one, class two, class three data. Uh, with the vestibular schwannoma information, um, although there's a lot of dogma out there, <laughs> there there's not a lot of class one uh, evidence, certainly no prospective randomized studies of surgery, radiation, or anything else. Uh, in fact, of all the questions, um, there was only one level two recommendation. All the rest of it was either level three recommendations or what we concluded was insufficient information to make a recommendation. Uh, the level two recommendation actually came out of the imaging section where there was a question of what is the best way to follow this disease after you've treated it with radiation uh, surgery or both. And uh, it was very simple, and, you know, but it had been studied and it's just a T1 way to gadolinium enhanced scans. Uh, when you see nodular progression, that's tumor in almost every case. Uh, radiation necrosis is an uncommon thing uh, in modern treatment. Um, and that was the only level two recommendation because that had been done in a relatively prospective comparative cohort. All of our other recommendations are level three. I can certainly uh, mention a few of them, they're still quite interesting. Uh, you know, I, I mentioned that one of the chapters is on audiologic screening, which isn't necessarily a, a hotbed of interest in neurosurgery, but it's actually quite useful to those of us that uh, treat these diseases. Uh, one of the questions is, you know, what are the parameters for hearing loss that would trigger you to do an MRI scan? And there are a couple of them. Uh, the parameters that the audiologists and ENT guys came up with is a greater than 10 decibel difference between the two ears. 
over two or three frequencies that they usually test. Um, or you could even really simplify it and uh, screen every patient who's got more than a 15 decibel loss at 3000 Hertz. I mean, the data is in the literature is good enough to say that and make a level three recommendation. Now, if you MRI, do an MRI scan in every one of those, the number of patients that actually have a vestibular schwannoma is in the low single digits. I mean, it's 5% or less, it's not a lot. But the question was asked and there is an answer, you know, you have to decide, is it worth it to scan that many people? Uh, but in fact, you can. Uh, the other one was, you know, in patients that have a sudden hearing loss, how often is that going to be uh, a vestibular schwannoma when it's confirmed by an audiologist? And uh, that number is actually known. It's about 3%. And in general, it's recommended that you do an MRI scan with somebody who's got a sudden hearing loss that, you know, obviously it's not trauma or some other cause. So I just want to give a couple examples of things that... Um, uh, come out of this kind of literature. There, there is, there are some pearls in there. You can draw it out. Whether or not there'll ever be prospective randomized studies or something that would make this level two or level one data, I, I don't know. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting is the uh, things that the neurotologists came up with in terms of prognosis for hearing preservation. Uh, for instance, looking at single fraction low dose low dose radio surgery for uh, smaller tumors, they estimated the probability of hearing it years, five years, and 10 years, not only for radiation, but for microsurgery or for observation. And interestingly, the, uh, the hearing preservation for um, radiosurgery and for observation is the same. That is, at two years, the probability of a good, hear, good hearing ear staying good is 75 to 100%. At five years, it drops to 50 to 75%. And 10 years and beyond, it's 25% to 50% and probably declines from there. So the hearing preservation from single dose radio surgery versus just observation in a small lesion is the same. I'm not sure the radio surgeons necessarily want to hear that. Right. Uh, but right. <laughs> the data supports that. And microsurgery doesn't stand up to that at all. That is for small lesions, less than two centimeters in people that have pretty good hearing, you know, what we would call serviceable hearing, not necessarily, you know, um, AH um, grade one hearing, but for serviceable hearing, uh, 25-50% hearing preservation is true at two years, five years, and 10 years, which is on the poorer end of what you get with radio surgery or observation. Uh, and for those of us as surgeons, it's a little bit humbling, but the data was, um, you couldn't argue with it at all. The, was, uh, was that, Jeff, was that studied at the, at, for different surgical approaches? You know, one of the classic early neurosurgery resident kind of questions is the different surgical approaches and you know, how to, how to pick one based on what you're seeing from a scan or what you're seeing based on that hearing test. Can you, did, does, does this guidelines address that? Yeah, you make a good point. And it is for someone with a small, that is two centimeters smaller lesion that is, that has serviceable hearing and it included all the approaches. They, they all came together um, to give you that information. There was not necessarily one that was superior to the other, as long as you made the right choice, so to speak and executed it safely. What about for things like, you know, facial nerve preservation and... The uh, cranial nerve monitoring um, section came up with a series of uh, grade three recommendations um, that, you know, essentially cranial nerve monitoring is good. It, it didn't say much more than that. However, preservation was better using it than not using it. And so we um, had uh, level three recommendations. The only place where we couldn't really make a recommendation is there's a 
different ways of monitoring hearing. And there was conflicting data um, and monitoring uh, cochlear nerve function. And so a recommendation was not made regarding that. Which I was gonna, just going to point out that when you read these, like in the pathology one and in that example, the question that you asked there, when no recommendation is made, that that is different than a level three. Some people feel that that's the same, and it's not, in the sense that 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 means there just really isn't it. So, like the pathology section for the vestibular schwannoma is very sparse. I don't think any even level three recommendations are made in it as to. Um, techniques for pathologic analysis contributing anything to the questions that were That's at. correct. Yeah, yeah, we didn't find much. Were, were there any topics uh, that, uh, or questions, I guess, that came up maybe after you'd already submitted the paper or after you submitted the questions that you wish that, the, that you feel like the paper, you know, should have asked this question in that paper, we're gonna get to this next time? I think um, we were a little disappointed we thought about it. We actually actually asked a question about it, um, the use of bevacizumab, in, uh, uh, and we pretty much confined our discussion to NF2 disease and not, not to sporadic vestibular schwannomas. Um, and so that uh, is something we probably need to expand into. I mean, there's anecdotal stuff in case reports. I, I had a case that seemed to respond and, and uh, was put on for breast cancer and had a small acoustic neuroma, and then um, it it involuted. So we never really knew it was metastatic or wasn't, we didn't have pathologic proofs, but it, it's intriguing. You mentioned um, that, that the work for the guidelines uh, that, we're, that we're discussing was performed in, I think, 2000, you know, 15, 16, 2014, and the work was done in 15 and 16 electronically. Have, have guideline methodologies changed since then? Are there any differences in how the, 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 the actual work is gonna be done this time around, or is it the same approach, but with updated data? The searches are way more efficient <laughs> and complete. Uh, I think that, and that is uh, likely to produce better data because we're not gonna be missing things that might be out there that might've been a little bit more obscure or we just didn't uh, design the searches properly. As far as, um, reviewing the citations uh, based upon inclusion and exclusion criteria and coming to a, a agreement on what's important literature and what isn't. It's somewhat the same. There still has to be a little bit of that uh, work to be done. And the, the grading scales are gonna stay the same or are you gonna go into different, uh, still gonna be one, two, three? And yeah, we're gonna keep it simple. Um, there are a lot of grading scales out there, as you know, and um, we get asked to review guidelines by other organizations and have had to reject a few of them because there's no clear relationship of class of data or value of data to value of recommendation made on that data. Um, kind of surprising, actually. You would think that there would be that consistency, but there are some major organizations that don't do that well. Many like to put consensus high into the uh, into the flow chart or like override, override things with consensus and which is kind of one of the things we've tried to, to guard against. I, I think sometimes we do that in the interpretation of the lower level and can craft some recommendations based on 
best clinical judgment, but they have to be taken for what they are. That doesn't just, it just doesn't prove that one's better than another. There have been editorial comments made at our, you know, meetings and so on about you, you can't really write a guideline with some, without some form of consensus. And I would agree with that. We will disagree amongst the writers as to the value or lack thereof or the interpretation of data in a paper. And ultimately, you'll have three people look at it and, you know, it's two versus one or something. So there ends up being a consensus or some sort of agreement. But as far as the, the formal definition of a class one piece of information or a level one recommendation, we, I would agree we need to move that somewhere above consensus. Do, do you send uh, your work to, you know, radiation oncology or, or to otology seeking their endorsement for your guidelines? The national organizations um, do like to interchange their, their guidelines. Um, some are very um, strict and rigid as to what they will review or what they will accept. Uh, but we do, uh, we've had the ENT people have been very good about working with us. Um, some of the other guidelines that have to do with cancer, uh, ASCO and things like that, they're uh, less willing to co collaborate with us. But I think it's important to share this with the other organizations because then if they would endorse or recognize educational value, then it gets out to their membership and that spreads the word, so to speak, makes more value of the work we did. And to more at the basic level, almost every every effort or every chapter or subtopic that is appropriate would have, for example, radiology rep representation. That, that comes from the writing group leader, you know, as to uh, some discretion as to who they're going to invite. There's not a lot of point in inviting a pathologist to a surgery section, but it does it, it does make sense to have a radiologist or a series of them in the radiology section and the same with radiation oncology. So they're usually in the writing group as well. If we can get them assigned, which we, we at least on the guidelines committee, occasionally will be asked to, to volunteer a few people to participate in another professional organization's guidelines, like, like ASCO or radiology or, uh, or neurology often, and then try to come up with two or three people. And then, then there's the question of whether those two people that are have been volunteered really speak for our entire organization and that can be a little dicey but so it usually is a disclaimer saying dear we we're promoting these two people as independent experts in neurosurgery they don't necessarily speak for the AANS and the CNS pending approval of the joint guideline committee and the parent organizations so um it does it used to not be such a big thing cuz it was more educational it's more and more becoming uh, uh, all of these things are being used in different ways that we didn't always anticipate. And the parent organizations have to be careful in, as to what they endorse um, and what they choose to not endorse. So they're usually pretty careful about um, uh, of that. And the biggest thing, at least as, as it was when I was on the committee, is if, they, if, they are, if the methodology hung on a couple of very simple things, multidisciplinary authorship, um, uh, adherence that the recommendations followed evidence-based guidelines that were not entirely consensus-based, we generally would approve them. Uh, but many got rejected because they just, it was just like a writing group. Um, they would get together, a bunch of people, whoever was, you know, invited to the group, got to voice their opinions, they wrote up a consensus paper, and that's, that's not what this process is about. Right. I get off my soapbox now, sorry. 
One one last question that we're running a little low on time for both of you. If you had to, if you if you could pick a clinical study that could happen to to contribute to the next guidelines paper, what what would it be? What topic would you really just you know you have all the resources in the world design a clinical study to address a question? For vestibular schwannoma, correct. There are. At all the resources in the world, we are understanding from the pathology, although it doesn't help us a lot with diagnosis, we know that vestibular schwannomas have a substantial underpinning of abnormal inflammation. And uh, there are targeted agents that could be used for that. If I had all the resources in the world, there are pathways for which we already have targeted agents that we could study vestibular schwannoma response. Uh, they are rare. And therefore, it's hard to get patients enrolled in them. Some patients are quite symptomatic and can't wait, so it'd be hard to accrue. Uh, but I think, you know, I suppose it's hard to pursue something which may provide an answer to vestibular schwannoma that's non-surgical and put myself out of business. Uh, but moving in the direction of targeted therapies for the management of this disease would be wonderful, particularly for the NF2 people and the people with, you know, medical infirmities that can't have surgery and for some reason don't want radiation. Uh, that would sure. be a wonderful way to move. Yeah, I agree. I mean, our crude tools, surgery, radiation, they could be better studied. They could be better compared as to subtyping who's going to benefit from radiosurgery versus an open resection and do it in a way that provided better data. But there's still going to be a lot of technique, um, surgeon-dependent variability inside there. And, and you're still going to leave tumor cells behind no matter what happens. So you know, it's a it's like meningioma in that it's a it's going to be a persistent microscopic disease unless for some reason you really can get total resection, in which case you you're a win. But it's unusual, more unusual with these than meningioma. So targeted molecular therapies and understanding exactly how you shut this type of really non almost non malignant growth or non uh, high mitotic growth down is really really a win. And Great. then we well, it somehow because we got to be involved with the procedure. So we got to get in there, put the micro pumps in the right spot um, and then let the magic, magic stuff do its thing. But uh, yeah, we can't just give them a pill or a shot. That's not, you know, that's not going to help out neurosurgery. Well, I want to thank both of uh, our uh, guests uh, for a, a lively discussion on vestibular phonome. I'm very much looking forward to the updated guideline, which uh, should be coming out soon. Uh, I also want to thank uh, uh, both of our guests uh, who have a, a, a long history with the guidelines section for their tireless work on uh, bringing guidelines topics to fruition. As, a, as an author on a couple of these myself, I know the amount of work that goes into it. And I very much appreciate uh, what uh, both of you have done. Uh, so thank you to Reichen. Thank you to Dr. Olson. Uh, for our listeners, please check the CNS website regularly for updated guidelines, topics, and podcasts. And for everyone, have a great night. Thank you for listening.